Welcome listeners. This is Alicia Duncan with Lifeline Theater. I'm the artistic director and we are here talking to members of the Miss Holmes team. And uh, please introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Chris Walsh. I'm the adapter. I'm Katie McLean Hainsworth and I play Sherlock Holmes. And I'm Paul Holmquist and I get to direct. Awesome. And all three of these wonderful artists are members of the Lifeline Theater Ensemble. So we're just going to get started with some questions. What was it like revisiting this piece in in such a different form? Well, um, for working on the adaptation, I felt like it was... uh you know, putting on a pair of comfortable shoes in a way. Uh, there was a lot of stuff that I thought kind of uh, transitioned seamlessly from the stage version to the radio version. Uh, and then it was kind of fun in the few places where we had to come up with something new to uh, just kind of sit and just think about just a, a slight alternate version of what we'd already done. Yeah, I loved it. It's so much less running around. <laughs> no, no eating paper or having to quickly take black eye makeup off and put your hair up in four minutes before you have to run back on stage. So that part of it was sort of fun. But I also really enjoyed figuring out how to channel Sherlock's energy and her her sort of way of interacting with the world strictly through. Uh, voice and dialogue, and Paul was a great help with that throughout. I thanks, Katie. So are you. <laughs> uh, the uh, the fun of the fun of this is, I think, for all of us, like the um, r- really tight focus on the performances. Um, the acting is so. Um, uh, the, on like a microscopic level when you're working with a microphone. And while we don't, we miss all the physicality, um, the story that's told the physical bodies in the room, it's fun, so fun to get to get the nuance of meaning within the words and play with it on a, on a sonic level. And you also have to listen so much, um, you know, like mm-hmm. it, it Obviously, when you're on stage and acting, you're always listening, but there's so much other stimulation and information that comes from the environment and from the other actors that, you know, it sort of is this big blended experience. But with this, um, really listening to uh, each person's, uh, you know, the way they are filtering this moment through the microphone is key to getting that experience of listening and responding that is the center of the craft of acting. It's fascinating. It's great. Yeah. Hey, Katie, do you feel like you made any new discoveries? Um, did I make any new discoveries? I'm a little bit of a different person than I was four years ago, but she's pretty ingrained in me at this point, those words and stuff. We joked a lot throughout the recording about how we've done this a million times. We don't need to rehearse, we don't have to, you know, and all that stuff. But, um, I think I I relied a lot more on her relationship with Watson through the recording of this uh, than I did comparatively through the rehearsal process of the original show where I was, you know, doing something for the first time and scared and not wanting to mess it up and stuff. And now I felt like I, a lot of that was under the bridge and 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 foundational. And so, like I said before, that that those scenes with Watson and really listening. And we, we called one of those scenes like an old friend, but it was like meeting an old friend in a new light, um, doing it this way. And so I, I don't think I, I don't think I, um, uh, 
made any huge discoveries about who Sherlock is, but I did discover a lot more about what that relationship with Watson means. Though I think the longer we sit with these characters, that's a natural evolution that's going to happen. And as writer, um, Walsh, do you think you made any new discoveries? Um, hard to say. I mean, the show, I feel like the meaning of the show evolved a lot over the last four years. Um, and we've talked a lot about how much it felt like it evolved uh, throughout the course of the original production. Um, like, just there were a lot of significant world events that occurred uh, and, you know, lines that felt light or comedic or throwaway at the beginning of the run somehow, you know, became much more meaningful or serious or, you know, certainly, you know, less funny toward the end. And that stuff has always fascinated me. Um, but I feel like, you know, the uh, it's interesting to see kind of as it goes along what hasn't changed, uh, how how much of it is still kind of resonating the way it was originally intended to. There's a certain atmospheric quality to moody London streets that works really well on stage with fog machines and lights and so forth. So what was it like creating that in this new form, Paul? So one of the things I asked Chris about early on is we were while we're recording these scenes is um, adding these kind of non uh, nonverbals, these sort of sounds of the actors um, the thing about actors is they love the opportunity to act in any capacity. And so if you ask an actor, you know, that to, uh, maybe they're a little out of breath from coming in from up the stairs or, or they're still, um, uh, recovering from a smack to the face, like what might that sound like and give the actor a moment to perform that. Um, and we got all these like rich, I think we got a lot of rich environmental sounds from the actors. Um, Performing because you you don't have that physical interaction um, between them on the stage. You have to sort of create it with the uh, theater of the mind, um, and uh, those sounds are hugely important. And Walsh, is that how you feel about uh, creating the mood, the moody atmosphere? Uh, some of that can be done with sound and and that kind of thing. But is that what uh, you were going for here? Um, well, I mean, the soundscape was certainly a big part of it, and it was kind of exciting to see, uh, I guess, see is the wrong word, but uh, to kind of refocus on that this time around, rather than uh, starting with the visuals. But at the same time, you know, getting to bring in some of the music that we used the first time to kind of recreate some of that vibe was really great. And then there are a lot of other things, though, that for me still kind of bring out the Britishness of it and the uh, Victorian era of it that I, uh, beyond things that are necessarily specific to Sherlock Holmes and the, the rolling fog of the London streets. Like I, uh, I always kind of liked, uh, the idea that there was sort of an Oscar Wilde-ish patter to, uh, to the rhythm of the dialogue. And I love how the, the actors really kind of dove into that. It's so funny you say that because uh, before we started recording, I was like, do I talk too fast? Do I have to slow down? I think I talk too fast. <laughs> so suddenly when it's just my voice, I'm like, nope, I talk too fast. That's that's terrible. I have to slow down. We, uh, we had the fortune of having uh, Andy Hansen come back to us uh, just out of his own interest to um, help 
recompose some of his original music from the uh, original production mm-hmm. um, to suit our purposes. And that's that also has added to the sense of um, of, of the mystery and what I refer to as the 80s. Uh, public broadcasting mysteries of Agatha Christie and Hercule Poirot and uh, Jeremy Brett's um, own Sherlock Holmes, you know. Um, and uh, with our with our engineer and producer Keith Conrad working and helping us with the sound effects and creating that sort of sonic environment, with this, that's where the that's where our lights are. That's where our fog is. That's where our set is. It's all within the the sound design that, that Keith has been putting together and working with Andrew's um, music. Absolutely. The three of you have collaborated a lot at this point. Do you think that um, past collaboration has made this process easier? Or how do you think it impacted this collaboration? I think it always helps um, when you are familiar with people in whatever regard. We've collaborated a lot uh, in a lot of different um, roles and combinations. I've directed both of them. I think um, Chris has acted in something I've written. We've all acted together. Uh, so you, you sort of developed a shorthand and a way of approaching things and a way of talking about things, especially um, in the original production of this at any rate, like in our space, we all understand the limitations of our space and how we we need to work with it and work within it and make the most of it. Um, all that being said, they are both, uh, they both continue to delight and surprise me in whatever capacity that we're working together in. So we're not quite at the point of familiarity breeding contempt, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Long before there, there was a script, I mean, from the very beginning, uh, I'd always heard Katie's voice uh, in this role. Uh, and that came from our long history of working together through Lifeline. And Paul was always uh, the person I wanted to to go on that journey with. Uh, Paul directed the first play I wrote. Uh, We've collaborated in that capacity a few times now. Uh, And, you know, he and I have, I feel, have always just kind of had a a very sympathetic response to each other's ideas uh, that has always been a lot of fun to work with working with with katie and chris is such a delight because i mean we we talk about what we share um on our resumes and working with each other and directing each other and whatnot but um but also the personal connection of having worked together at lifeline theater as ensemble members means we've worked on almost every show that lifeline has produced in the Oh, gosh, since 2000. I've been a member since 2006. That's a long time, you know, and so you develop these really trusting, collaborative uh, relationships where I know that I can lean on them in a way that um, I can't I just don't have that relationship with anyone else. So it's a it's a beautiful mix. Being an ensemble member is such a benefit. We get this beautiful mix of like the top notch, amazing artists that we get to be friends with. And um, that makes the collaboration uh, and the work such a joy. So given the nature and history and and while we have these this wonderful collaboration within the family of Lifeline artists, what is our challenge that we're being called yeah. to answer with We See You White American Theater to yes. make to develop those kinds of relationships with with more artists than we've had right. a chance to work with here at Lifeline. Something that I've been thinking a lot about and what's so special about this project for me is I don't know when I will have the opportunity to work again 
because I don't have a place right now. There is there isn't a place for me to direct right now. I'm not my not, my voice isn't needed or wanted, frankly. So uh, and 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 I'm okay with that, you know. And that's that's. But what I can do is I can be a part of the ensemble in a nurturing position, a position of incubator, so that um, someone new coming in without the twenty year. 20 years experience. Yeah. But 20 years experience that I have, um, I can help them find their way, support them, boost them up on their way. Um, and that puts me, I, you know, I'm in a great position to do that. So in this day and age, you know, having these opportunities to reunite with my friends is lovely and it's an incredible privilege to be able to do that. Um, but it also, it also means that it's, I, I can recognize that um, it's time for me to step back too and support someone else coming up along the way. I think that's such a great point. And I think right now our duty as ensemble members is to find that balance between um, stepping back and making room and supporting and um, getting to know people. Like I, 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 uh, did a show last year that I didn't really, I love doing it, but I didn't really have time or space or mental space for it. But it was like, but there's no ensemble members involved. <laughs> and, and there should be, there should be a representative in there. And if I can be that person to meet the people who are coming in to do this show and to form relationships with them, then, then I should do that. Uh, so, so yeah, there, it's, it's a balance of, of uh, staying involved enough to nurture and support and welcome people into the family, but not taking up all the air in the room. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for saying that, Katie. So clear. Yes. And, and we look forward to it. This is something we've stepped into as an ensemble and that we're, uh, ready to embark on, but being also aware of how to make space and how to support uh, artists that have not been a part of this particular uh, family and making room for new family is really important and vital yeah. and and collaboration is still an, is still a big part of that we are that's what the theater is and uh so i'm looking forward to what happens when we can be back together in a space and the voices that come uh and connect with us while we're still in virtual space as well yeah. so thanks yes. friends thank you snapping you can't probably yeah. can't hear it because it's not near my virtual snaps <laughs> That's great. So what do you think it is about Sherlock Holmes, Walsh, that still captures our imagination? I wish I knew what <laughs> it was. Uh, if I could put my finger on it, I think that would make a huge difference. Um, but there is something uh, – he's a bit of a superhero, and that's a thing that's always excited people. There is – you know, he's he's always kind of seen as one step removed from the rest of the world. Uh, he sees things in a way that a lot of people wish they could. There's a certain amount of uh, fantasy in that that I think people really appreciate. Uh, for me, what really makes it tick is the relationship between Sherlock and Watson. You know, Sherlock is this sort of ideal in some ways that people might strive for. In a lot of ways, it's kind of the extremes, the bests and worsts uh, of whatever uh, society happens to be looking at it at the time. You know, in Victorian 
uh, when it was f- first written. He was this, you know, very aloof character, uh, but he had a drug habit. He had a bizarre relationship with women, but he's seen through the lens of this everyman character of Watson, who is kind of carefully designed to be uh, unnoticeable uh, or somebody who you can comfortably put your own point of view into. And it's a little different when you move it to a new new medium and you're not necessarily getting Watson's narration of it. But at the same time, I feel like that uh, humanizing quality that uh, Watson brings the the best things out of Sherlock and Sherlock does the same for Watson. Mm -hmm. And through that relationship, elevates everybody who is watching them. So we're at the start of Women's History Month, and in revisiting this piece, Katie, first of all, I would love all of you to answer, but Katie, do you have more ideas about how important it is or to have female homes, Watson duo? I really wish it wasn't as important as it is. I really wish it wasn't still as important as it is. Um, I think when we started the process four years ago of rehearsal, I was a lot more hopeful, uh, a little more naive, and things happened over the course of our production that um, were very hard to take, that made what we were doing feel very important, um, and that and but that also we needed to be doing to battle despair and despondency over what was happening in the world and specifically around conversations with how women are treated in our society. Um, so I, I, I think it's still relevant. It, I wish it, I wish it wasn't. Paul, you have thoughts on this? Kind of piggybacking on the previous question as well. I think having, Sherlock is, for me, one of the appeals about the character is the cliche of how mathematical or extra dimensional their brain works to um, solve the puzzle and see the big picture. And for that to be just um, understood to be a male character um, culturally (laughs) for so long, it still seems like a new idea. Isn't there a whole other series that just came out on Prime or something with a with a with another female-ish Holmes like character? I um, think the a, sister uh, Enola. Enola. Yes, Enola. Yeah, Netflix. Yeah, right. But I there is another series. one, Paul, that is on Prime, but I can't remember what it is right now. I but think. it's you know it still feels like this is um, and I appreciate what you're saying, Katie. Too like it shouldn't be this. <laughs> it shouldn't feel this urgent still for us to have a female Sherlock Holmes. It's a, it's a stuffy old British character. We shouldn't, it it shouldn't be something that um, feels so cutting edge for us to adapt into, into this form, but it's, um, it still feels really important. I think beyond the character, what, what Walsh has really done here, which was so uh, insightful and meaningful and relevant is that he he didn't just switch genders. You know, he really explored what it what it would mean. Uh, before we started rehearsals for this in 2016, I read everything. I read uh, the whole huge book and I made annotations and I and I because I knew that going into it, one of the biggest things that we um, was going to propel our storytelling was. What can the male Sherlock do that the that the female Sherlock can't, and how does she account for that? Um, 
and and Chris's script does that from page one all the way <laughs> to the mm. end. So so that's what m- makes it feel so relevant is that difference. Sherlock Holmes of Arthur Conan Doyle stories has access to everything without question. Uh, he can walk into any crime scene. He can walk into anybody's house. He can do whatever he wants. Um, and and so. Uh, Really, the beauty of the script is is the taking of that seed and saying, "Okay, all things being equal, how how does she navigate the world, mm-hmm. and what does that look like?" You know, when the idea first came about for a, you know, to do a play with a, a gender swapped Sherlock and Watson, the initial Im, uh, impulse was just, you know, gee, wouldn't this be a fun idea, and. Over the course of uh, writing the first few drafts of the play, uh, just a lot of other things happened. That was when, uh, you know, Chicago's Not in Our House movement came about. And I became very aware of the fact that, uh, yeah, it would be fun, but there's more to it than that. Uh, There's a certain – there's a bit of responsibility involved in trying to tell a story like this. And – and I feel like that's kind of why it's not just to tell the story of these characters, but it, I think it's important who's telling the story. Uh, it was important to uh, to honor those voices uh, and respect, you know, the sources that those ideas came from. And you know, as the stories have progressed and as we've gotten into the idea of doing a sequel uh i've learned a lot more words like you know understanding the definition of inclusivity and intersectionalism and things like that uh have come into play and and i just think it's necessary to to honor those ideas and and make space for them it's always interesting to revisit a role. So Katie, can you talk about how the passage of time and life experience, you kind of said this a little bit earlier, but yeah. uh, is there more that uh, that has occurred to you since you first played that role as an informed or current interpretation? I feel a lot older. I feel a lot older than just four years. And I don't mean just like physically. I just, I feel a, a little more jaded, a little more aware and a, a little more um, conscious of of um, what we're putting out in the world and and how it affects people that uh, don't look like me and um, and and what that means. So you know, I I I, I had a health scare last year that was very serious, and um, <laughs> and. And had we uh, not been in the middle of a pandemic, it would have happened the week before we would have started rehearsals for the sequel to this show. And um, <laughs> the thought of not possibly not getting to do the sequel to this show uh, <laughs> was was terrifying and, and, and um, caused me to really take a very good look at my life, how I take care of myself or don't take care of myself. And, and uh, how to better balance all the aspects of my life. So, so coming into um, doing another full fe- full fledged production, albeit at home on a computer on a headset, um, the, the difference probably doesn't show 
in my approach to Sherlock, but the difference in how I care for myself and how I um, think about what we're putting out in the world, uh, all of that internal stuff has been kind of profound for me. Thank you for joining us for this most informative interview with playwright Christopher Walsh, actor Katie McLean Hainsworth, and director Paul Holmquist. Miss Holmes' audio drama is streaming through May 2nd. For tickets, visit us at lifelinetheater.com, where you'll find Name Your Price with a suggested donation of $20. Thanks again for tuning in. Coming up on May 1st at 1 p.m. will be a live Q&A with the full cast and production team. Visit our website for details. See you on the flip side.